Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chinese History Podcast. I'm your host, Yiming Ha. Today's guest is Professor Joanna Whaley-Cohen. Professor Whaley-Cohen is the provost for NYU Shanghai and Julius Silver Professor of History at New York University. Her research interests include early modern Chinese history, particularly the Qing Dynasty, China and the West, Chinese imperial culture, especially in the Qianlong era, warfare in China and Inner Asia, and Chinese culinary history. And she has authored several books and articles on these topics. In addition, Professor Willie Cohen has received many honors, including archival and postdoctoral fellowships from the American Council of Learned Societies, Goddard, and presidential fellowships from NYU, and an Olin Fellowship in Military and Strategic History from Yale. Professor Willie Cohen joins us today to talk about a very influential school in the study of the Qing Dynasty, the New Qing History School. Professor Willie Cohen, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So, as a PhD student, and as you know, most PhD students in late imperial Chinese history, or early modern Chinese history, or even modern Chinese history, we've all heard of the so-called New Qing History School, and I think it's really changed the way we view not just Qing history but also history of China in general. I want to start off by asking you, what is New Qing history? What is new about New Qing history? How did it develop as a field? And how is it different from previous studies of the Qing dynasty? New Qing history developed in the last part of the 20th century as a result of the work of a number of scholars who began to look at the non-Chinese origins of the Qing rulers from the 17th to the early 20th century, and perhaps to a lesser extent also of other non-native dynasties. And they began to think about what it might mean that they were not ethnically Chinese. Scholars started to think about the real meaning of a lot of things, in fact, of concepts that we'd always taken for granted. For example, we often hear it said, even now, that China has an unbroken history of 5,000 years, but that got people thinking, what does that mean? What do we mean when we say China? Are we talking about a geographical area, a cultural or civilizational area, linguistic area, an ethnic area? What are we talking about here? And what does unbroken mean? And that, in turn, got people thinking, about the shape of the empire we had previously thought of rather casually as Chinese in a fairly undifferentiated way, and about the fact that in the past millennium, the Mongols had ruled China for almost a century and the Manchus had ruled China for almost three centuries, so almost 400 of the last thousand years. And there had long been an assumption that these dynasties' success in ruling China was largely attributable to two factors. One was what was seen as the almost sponge-like ability of Chinese culture to absorb the cultures of outsiders who came to China, sometimes described as Sinicization. And one was its highly advanced bureaucratic system, which was surely one of the earliest in the world. And with regard to the Manchus, who were the rulers of the Qing dynasty, the view was that these invaders with a language and background culturally distinct from China's were the last in that line of alien rulers whose wholesale adoption of China's culture and institutions enabled them to govern its vast territories and populations. So the wholesale adoption of Chinese ways, in other words. And at its very simplest, the Manchu Qing were seen as having assimilated almost completely by 1800 as having become Chinese in essence, and then as having lapsed into a slow, long decline during which, in a slightly contradictory way, perhaps, an apparently resurgent ethnic self-interest 
conflicted with their responsibility to save China from Western and Japanese imperialism. And that account of the last maybe 30% of the whole Qing period not only largely blamed China's wide-ranging woes of that time on the Manchus, but it also, in a kind of false teleology, took that presumed ineptitude that eventually led to the end of the empire and read it back from the 19th century to cover the entire Qing period. The idea that the Manchus had no interest in keeping China intact or in saving it from imperialism might be seen as a Sinocentric point of view. But another aspect of it should also be taken into account. In other words, the suggestion I mentioned just now implied that China had a long and unbroken history, that things had remained largely the same over 5,000 years or something like that. And this implication led to something like this. In Starting in maybe the late 17th or early 18th century, the rising European empires, particularly in Britain and France, whose growing military power made them not only militarily powerful, but their point of view very powerful. Those powers began to put forward a suggestion that while the West was moving forward, China was essentially just going around in circles. They said the West is dynamic and diverse, and China is static and monolithic. And all of that on its own was obviously highly Eurocentric and had a number of implications about empires, about the roots of the modern world, and so on. At the same time, as the new Qing history put forward by American-based scholars, was also influenced by the shift against grand narratives and a new postmodern emphasis on multiple approaches to the study of history. So one part of the rethinking of history in China that took place had to do with trying to understand the Manchus more on their own terms. And one part of that had to do with trying to understand the Qing Empire in the context not only of empires of China, but also of global empires. And one part of it had to do with understanding world history more broadly. So the Manchus on their own terms, empires, including global empires, and world history in general. And the questions that scholars began to ask were along these lines, was there in fact something special and different about the Manchus who ruled the Qing from 1636 till the early 20th century? Were they different from other dynasties, either Chinese ones or non-Chinese ones that ruled China? And if so, in what ways were they different? Why did they last for such a long time? How did they last for such a long time? Did they, in fact, assimilate almost completely into Chinese ways, or did they, in some respects or all respects, manage to maintain their distinctiveness? Can Qing practices properly be described as imperialist? Should one characterize the Qing as early modern, something leading forwards, or late imperial, something looking backwards, or should one characterize it as something else? And I would say that as this new thinking developed, it also had to do with the question, I've been thinking about this a lot today. I'm not sure if it, if, if this question came up at the time or if it came up a little bit later, but it had to do with the question of whether we should be thinking in terms of either or, or in terms of both and. In a context where increasingly people were starting to understand Chinese thinking as operating on a kind of spectrum, where a situation could be more towards one end or more towards the other, more Chinese or more Eurasian, say, but not necessarily categorically one or the other. And Pamela Crossley, who's one of the leading scholars of the new Qing history, refers to this in terms of simultaneity, where there are identifiably Qing elements, Eurasian elements to Qing rule, but also identifiable Chinese ones. So that's that, I guess, my rather long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> 
these new questions that you've mentioned that scholars start thinking, I think they're both interesting and important. But how did the New Qing history scholars come up with answers to these questions? I think you mentioned a bit earlier about archives. What kind of archives were they using? Well, and they're very important, they're not exclusive. Part of the New Qing methodology in action was indeed the use of Manchu language archives. In the early 1980s, the great scholar Joseph Fletcher, who unfortunately died very young, had put forward the idea that the archival materials written in Manchu were not necessarily just the translation of archival materials written in Chinese, and that if you wanted to get serious about Qing history, you needed to learn Manchu. And that piqued the curiosity of a number of scholars, Beatrice Bartlett in particular, who spent over a decade in the archives in Taiwan and a little bit in Beijing, confirmed both Fletcher's observation and that what she saw in the archives was a huge amount of archival material in Manchu that covered the whole of the 18th century. And then as the archives in particularly the PRC began to open up to scholars, including foreign scholars. Americans such as Pamela Crossley and Mark Elliott, among others, began to learn to read Manchu and at the same time went to the archives and read those archives, both in Chinese and in Manchu. And as you said that this is for non-specialists as well as specialists, I want to note three important points here. The first one is that only three emperors reigned for almost the whole of the 18th century, Kangxi, Yongzheng, and Qianlong, with Qianlong as emperor for over 60 years. Second, that officials who served at that court, as well as the European Jesuits who served at that court in the hope of converting China to Christianity, all needed to be conversant in both Chinese and Manchu. And third, that the empire ruled by the Qing at its mid-18th century height was the largest ever ruled from Beijing. And it included not only what we think of as China proper and the Manchu's native northeast, but also Taiwan, which was brought into the empire for the first time in the late 17th century. Mongolia, which included both what is now the nation of Mongolia and Inner Mongolia, which is part of China. Tibet, which was governed from Beijing from the early 18th century in an arrangement which recognized but shared power with or dominated the religious leader, the Dalai Lama. Xinjiang annexed in the mid 18th century and the Southwest, which tended to be oriented more towards Southeast Asia than towards Beijing. So this really was a multi-ethnic and multilingual empire and that alone made it different from what we might call more purely Chinese empires. So. You said, how did people do it? They definitely read Manchu language archives, but New Qing history itself has been dynamic. So let me say a little bit about the founding authors of New Qing history. And those include, especially perhaps Evelyn Rorsky, who was president of the Association of Asian Studies in 1996. And in her presidential speech, she set out her view in a nutshell that the Qing was actually a Manchu-centered empire that regarded China as only a part, albeit a very important part, of its empire. It was not a Chinese empire run by Manchus, but it was a Manchu empire of China and other regions. And that meant that many of the techniques of ruling that they used were drawn from Inner Asia rather than from China. And by implication, or rather quite expressly set out by Rorsky, that also meant that the reason the Qing had been able to control China for almost three centuries was not because they had become perfectly Chinese, taking over the mechanisms of Chinese bureaucratic rulership and adopting Chinese culture wholesale, although to a large extent they did that 
but also because they did not do that, instead holding on to what they regarded as or maintained to be distinctive characteristics of inner Asian culture, including what we would now call multiculturalism. And what that meant, among other things, was that instead of regarding China as the center of a series of concentric circles, each one of which was progressively less civilized, the further away from the center from China it got, in Rorsky's influential view, the Qing thought in terms of a multiracial empire that included not only Chinese, but also Manchus, Mongols, Tibetans, Uyghurs, and to a lesser extent, other nationalities. And that was why, for example, the Imperial Summer Palace of the Qing was located to the north of Beijing in Chengde, roughly where China, Mongolia, and the Northeast come together. It's very beautiful, and I think they picked a great spot, actually. As described in detail by the geographer Philippe Faure, at Chengde, the Qing emperors created a kind of theme park of empire, reproducing significant landmarks from all around the empire, from the Potala Palace in Tibet to the Jinshan Temple in the heart of Chinese Jiangnan, among quite a few others, to indicate their domination of these different parts of the empire. Other scholars looked at, for example, imperial ideology, Pamela Crossley, and the 18th century redefinition of what it meant to be Manchu and what it meant to be Chinese. They looked at the distinctively Manchu institutions of the six banners and related concepts of ethnicity, and that was Mark Elliott and James Millward. They looked at Qing empire building, especially Peter Perdue, and at Qing deployment of Tibetan Buddhism as an instrument of ruling, Tibetan Buddhism being predominant in both Tibet and much of Mongolia. That was Patricia Berger, an art historian. And at attempts to control the historical record as regards those brought into the empire, which I worked on somewhat, and also Laura Hostetler. And then there came to be a kind of secondary kind of Qing history that was not exactly about new Qing history as such, but which took more or less for granted some of its premises and went on from there. And in that group, I would primarily include myself, especially my study of the ways in which Qing emperors, and Qianlong in particular, essentially invented a Manchu culture that was martial and warlike, and was one of the two legs on which the empire rested, the other one being military conquest. People like Michel Pirazzoli to Sir Stevens in Paris, who studied the imperial hunts. People who studied peripheries, such as Pat Giersch on the Southwest, Matthew Mosca on Xinjiang, and perhaps also Jonathan Schlesinger on the environmental history of the northern reaches of the empire, and so on. So New Qing history isn't new anymore, but it's spawned a range of new studies of the political history of the period. It's become a way of looking at Qing history that you can agree with or disagree with, but you can't really disregard altogether. Especially what it says is that the way the Qing ruled China was not only based on Chinese models, but also on inner Asian models simultaneously. So it seems like almost every field of Chinese history related to the Qing has been covered by new Qing historians. I'm just curious then, because like you said, the Qing empire was a multicultural empire. They ruled not just China, but projected power to other parts of East Asia and inner Asia as well. But China was clearly the largest part of their empire and arguably the most important. So how did the Qing emperors balance this Manchu identity with the need to keep China or the Chinese people happy under their rule, as well as to project power to non-Chinese people? I think in a couple of ways, both by displays of force, not actually the use of force, but displays of force, and by trying to adopt and co-opt 
Chinese culture to the greatest extent possible. It was a kind of, if you can't beat them, join them approach as far as that was concerned. And one of the things that I've been asking myself forever and I haven't really solved is how much did they believe in the stuff that they claimed to believe in? And how much were they just doing stuff for political purposes, the rulers, the emperors in particular? So for the displays of force particularly came out in the form of southern tours where the emperor and his retinue in huge numbers would go on, I can't remember how many, but certainly half a dozen or more tours of the heartland of Chinese culture, which is Jiangnan, which is the area of the great cultural centers of Suzhou and Yangzhou and Nanjing. And at the same time as people, I should just as a sidetrack, I should say I've been rereading partly in lockdown and since the story of the stone, which is the great story of a, a wealthy Chinese family. And I, I, I think about that a lot in terms of the displays of power and how when they went, when this very wealthy family went from one place to another, people sort of stood on the sides of the street and watched them. So I imagine as the emperor processed south and camped on the way and so on, people were looking and watching and thinking all the time. And we don't really know what they were thinking, but you can imagine in a, a culture which was full of word of mouth, as it were, people would say, oh, you'll never guess what I saw today. So it was a way to make manifest, to make present the strength and the power of the Qing emperorship in areas that were always thought of as the heartland of Chinese culture and therefore the most likely to oppose Manchu takeover in any sense or a sort of relegation of Chinese culture to second best. So that was a, a way of displays of force. And force is maybe not the exactly the right word, but displays of strength. And I think that can also be, this didn't really apply to Chinese so much as it did to the Mongols and peoples of the Northwest, but, but the imperial hunts and so on, which were again, great displays, parades and so on and so forth, also were closely related to the manifestations of power. So that's one way in which they did it. The second way is that, and I've written about this, but I, I deeply believe it still, is that when the Qianlong Emperor, sorry about the dog, famously said to the envoy of King George III of England, we have no need of foreign manufacturers. It, it was part of a kind of way in which he wanted to express control over everything. So I referred earlier to the Chunda Imperial Palace and to the replicas of landmarks from around the empire, like the Putala Palace and the Jinshan, Jinshan Temple, but there are many others, the Liuhe, which is in Hangzhou, which I climbed quite recently. And each one was slightly different. And whether they were unable to reproduce it exactly, or which I think they kind of Qingized it slightly to show their control, I'm not sure. And I've always thought that the famous summer palace that was burned in 1860 that had many European elements was a sort of a version of the same thing, a way of saying this is European, but it's it's a Qing version of, of, of European. And we want to show that it's ours and not yours, even though we're adopting some of your styles. So they used all kinds of cultural modes to infiltrate ways of Chinese culture. The emperor sponsored a huge bibliographic project, which many Chinese scholars worked on to 
try to preserve, but also keep under control these Chinese scholars who otherwise might be writing seditious things, for example. And he, one of my theories, as you probably don't know, is that he pretended to like Suzhou cuisine because it was supposed to be the best cuisine in the empire, where he didn't particularly like it, never ate fish, which is a big deal in Suzhou cuisine. So I think he was trying to stick himself into, insert himself into different forms of Chinese culture and to exert control over it. And that was the other way in which, more subtle but not unimportant way in which he tried to bring the Chinese under the Qing umbrella. And I think he must have been quite successful if you look at the long history of the Qing. In the beginning, you had all these riots and rebellions when the Qing started to enforce their hairstyles. But after the fall of the Qing, you still have so many Han Chinese people refusing to cut the queues. So, Yes, so interesting. Exactly. I do want to go back a little bit to a point you made earlier about ethnicity, because the traditional view has been that whenever there is a non-Chinese group that rules China, they get assimilated into Chinese culture, sinicized. But the new Qing history argues that is not the case. So how did the Manchus keep their ethnicity distinct? How did they separate themselves from the Han Chinese? You referred to the hairstyle. That was one way in which all people, whether they were Han Chinese or they were Manchu or they were anything else, had to wear their hair that way. And at the beginning, there was a keep your hair, lose your head, lose your hair and keep your head saying that went around. But Manchu women were not supposed to bind their feet, which all elite Chinese women did. And that was one gendered way of keeping a distinction. They also, from a cultural perspective, they tried to, fairly successfully, I think, I was just reading about the great Mary Wright, who somebody said had read too much Chinese history and believed everything that she read. And somebody criticized me for believing everything that Qianlong said uncritically. But they tried to develop a Manchu culture, which was much more oriented towards warfare and conquest and to make it an integral part of Chinese culture as a whole in a way it hadn't really ever been before. So that, for example, a huge body of art on military conquests came into being so that the art coming out of China was not only ravishingly beautiful landscapes, let's say, or gorgeous porcelain and so on, but records of military conquests and so on and so forth. These things entered the, the cultural canon to some extent. So there were those kinds of ways in which they tried to keep themselves distinct. There was also the banner system. I, I think it was a very complicated system because the longer the matches were in China, the more sort of by default, if you like, they took on Chinese ways. And so there were a lot of arguments about you, you can't do this and you can't say, you're a Manchu, you should know better, that kind of thing. They tried to maintain this martial ethos as a way of distinguishing Manchus, but it was completely artificial, I think, from the more scholarly Chinese whom they regarded as somewhat effeminate, I think, with their long robes and their long nails and reading all day and not interested in warfare. And they, to some extent, they promoted that not interested in warfare kind of cliche, if you like. So it seems there was some assimilation going on, but it's not a like a conscious attempt by the Manchus to become Chinese. And they were clearly aware of this and, and tried to separate themselves and maintain their Manchu culture. Is that correct? I think so. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, exactly. And of course, things happened in different social levels and in different areas, in different parts of the country and 
so on in different contexts. But yes, they did try to avoid assimilation and to maintain their distinctiveness, their ethnic distinctiveness. But as time went on, I think the ethnic distinctiveness just became less distinctive. I see. So it seems that New Qing history was pretty well received in Western academia. You mentioned all these scholars who started doing all these different research and started using Manchu language archives. And you also mentioned that you don't have to agree with New Qing history, but you can't disregard it. What about the reception in China, in Chinese academia? And in China, I refer to the, the PRC. What was their response to New Qing history? Did they agree with it? Did they disagree with it? I want to say first about in Western academia, looking back, it seems as though it was seamlessly integrated. And by Western academia, you have to mean scholars working in the West. And I would say there was something of a split between what you might call old school scholars of Chinese history, mostly Chinese scholars of China, very eminent ones, such as He Bingyi and Huang Bei and Qin Yuan, and the newer school of scholars who were mainly not Chinese. And I would say at first, the new interpretation of Qing history was seen as somewhat odd. (laughs) <laughs> interesting, not necessarily wrong, not necessarily all that significant. But gradually, and particularly with the endorsement of Evelyn Rorsky as president of the Association for Asian Studies, it got the wind in its sails. And another point that I think was significant in the acceptance of New Qing history was that the scholars who were, which at that generation of scholars who were producing these seminal works all came out of the best PhD programs in the US. So Pam Crossley from Yale and Mark Elliott from Berkeley, Jim Millward from Stanford, Laura Hostetler from Penn and Peter Perdue from Harvard. And that in itself gave their research a certain credibility in American Chinese history circles. So gradually scholars of Qing political history came around to a general acceptance, most of them, I would say, of the broad premises of the new Qing history. And they took it on from there. And there were also some scholars in the US to whose work New Qing history wasn't necessarily all that directly relevant, but who took it up and on to the next level. And in that group, I would include Susan Mann of UC Davis, who was doing completely original work in the kind of New Qing context on gender in the Qing. And my colleague Jonathan Hay at NYU, who was working on the interpretation of Chinese art in part in light of New Qing history. And that then contributed to other kinds of new approaches to the history of the period. It gave people permission to think about things in new ways, particularly, I think, with a new focus on material culture, which was partly also the result of more general historiographical trends. But in China, to get to your question, and I really mean here in the People's Republic, I would say there have been two broad responses. And the first was broadly welcoming of the possibility of new approaches, whether or not in the end people accepted them. In the other words, roughly similar to the reception of New Qing history in the West, and the other, which has got a lot more attention, is scathingly opposed to New Qing history and regards it as a form of neo-imperialism and of telling Chinese that they don't own their own history and that we can tell you what your history is about and you don't understand it. And that came out in particular in 2015 with a ferocious broadside in a very prestigious Chinese social sciences review that attacked the offending scholars and published what really looked like mugshots of them and said they were outrageous. And for Chinese scholars who agreed with that line of thought, New Qing history was raising questions about what really China was constituted as and whether areas such as Tibet and Xinjiang were connected organically to China, 
people had only become connected relatively recently as part of an imperialist project that was in its own way just as bad as the Western imperialist project, which China had been on the receiving end, which was not an acceptable perspective. And also, given that from no later than sometime in the 19th century, Chinese nationalist sentiment, which had spilled over into historiography, understood the Manchus as incompetent rulers with neither the strength of will nor the interest to keep China together. To look at the Manchus any other way was simply, you couldn't do it, your mind couldn't stretch to it. And in that view, Qing rule was a consolidation of pre-existing parameters, not a new expansion. And the meaning of China was not really open to interpretation. And at the same time, new Qing history also contradicted the orthodox view that history progressed through a series of phases that had been essentially slowed down by the Manchus, whether through ineptitude or deliberately. Now, I don't want to say that I think there's a strong tendency on the part of observers, including American-China scholars, to talk about the connection of scholarship and politics in China as though it was something unique, and much less ability to turn that lens back onto our own motivations as historians, which I'm sure I'm no more exempt from than anybody else. But that is to say that politics can affect scholarship everywhere, not just in China. And nationalism is something you find in Western countries as well as in China, but that isn't always acknowledged, although I think it's starting to be in some respects, in some circles. That doesn't prove anything anyway, but I was thinking earlier about as an illustration of that, the huge recent controversies over U.S. history, for example, the 1619 project that foregrounds the history of slavery as a founding moment in American history, or depending on your point of view, doesn't. So history, in other words, including new Qing history, is not just history. It's not just about the past, but it affects how we think about ourselves in the present, and it also affects how we think about others, partly because we define ourselves against that. And all of that has to be taken into account in understanding how New Qing history was received in China. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with the political implications that history might have. And I'm not a New Qing historian. I'm not even a Qing historian, but I was doing some research for this interview and I was reading on some articles about New Qing history in Taiwan. And from what I gather, New Qing history is pretty well received in Taiwan for particularly the reasons you've mentioned that it, it, if it seeks to separate the Manchus away from the idea of China, then it has implications for whether China actually ruled Taiwan or not. So here we also see the politics at play. That's very interesting. I asked a former student who's now teaching in Taiwan, because you would ask me that question, and I really didn't know the answer at all. What do people think about New Qing history in Taiwan? And he, he didn't tell me that, but he said, something like, it's pretty generally accepted. It's only the old style scholars who don't like it or something like that. So I thought that was interesting. So outside of the field of Qing history, because of course, as you already explained, almost every aspect of Qing history has been touched by new Qing history. Has the new Qing history school had any impact on how historians look at other Chinese dynasties? I suspect you might know the answer to that question better than I do, <laughs> but I think most likely that it has. But I also think it's incredibly important that scholars are careful not to be anachronistic or to conflate periods of time that are hugely different from one another, even if superficially there seem to be similarities or there seems to be the possibility of drawing analogies. And I'm not expressing any criticism in particular here. And I think one often can apply principles applicable in one context to another for example, from Chinese history to European history or the other way around. 
but you just have to be really careful to take the different contexts into account. And one of the things that I, I worry about is because of the narrative of unchanging Chinese history, if you say that the principles of New Qing history can be applied back 800 years earlier, you imply that everything was just the same. So you just have to be very, you have to be thoughtful about it as you do it and not just say, oh, look, there are some parallels. Hey, look, they're just the same. But I really don't know the recent historical work beyond the Qing period enough to say much more than that. But I'm sure it had influence, if only in the sense that it makes people think, oh, maybe there's another way to think about this. And when I teach in Shanghai, I usually teach a group of students, about half of whom are Chinese and about half of whom are not. They often say to me, no, professor, that's wrong. It's not what we learned in high school. And I always say to them, I don't suppose it is. And I'm just presenting another way to think about this history. And you can decide for yourself what you think makes the most sense. And I'm going to give you as much evidence as I can to back up my perspective. But you don't have to agree with me. And I've had tremendous arguments with them, but it's been a lot of fun watching them think about these different approaches, because I don't think New Qing history is taught in Chinese schools, particularly, for example. As a historian of the Yuan and the Ming, I think New Qing history has definitely given us some thought into how we consider the Ming. I think recent works by Professor David Robinson, for example, has been highlighting the Mongol aspect of the early Ming, right, which is very different from how scholars view the Ming as some sort of Han Chinese restoration, throwing out Mongols. But there is actually a lot of Mongols in China and a lot of Mongol influence on the Ming court. And I think that in some ways has to do with how new Qing history has re-examined Qing history and was forcing us to re-examine Ming and Yuan and, and other dynasties as well. Yeah, it's really interesting work. So going forward, where do you see the New Qing History School headed? Because it seems like there's a, already a lot of scholarship that has been done on a very diverse range of topics related to the Qing. Is there still more work that the methodology of the New Qing History or, or these archives, the Mantra archives, can be applied to? Or is this kind of it for New Qing History? What do you think? Well, maybe it shouldn't be called new anymore since it's 25 or 30 years old. But I would say that... New Qing history in its original manifestation was distinctly land-based, and for the most time, it didn't pay much attention to the maritime frontier. And China has something like 14,500 kilometers of coastline, so it's not a small amount from the northeast to the southwest. And when New Qing history did that, when it disregarded the maritime frontier, it implicitly accepted the premise that the Qing were inner Asian in their focus, and they weren't much interested in the sea or in naval power or in maritime activity. And one perhaps later outcome of New Qing history that I haven't mentioned is the new-ish understanding of how Qing administrators often took lessons learned on one frontier and applied them to another. And a bit like taking principles of Qing history and applying them to the Yuan, it sometimes worked and it sometimes didn't. But we're now coming to understand that principle might have been more broadly applicable than we once thought in a new Qing history context. And for instance, I should mention Ron Poe of LSE, whose work on the Blue Frontier is conceived of as a kind of new Qing maritime history, very original and very well researched. And he shows quite convincingly that the Qing administration, which was, it was a great empire in the 18th century and very effective, and it was very attentive to and deliberate about integrating its incredibly long maritime frontier into its grand empire. 
and his research suggests that the Qing court gradually developed a maritime awareness and it applied a series of frontier management models to its sea borders in the east, just as it did to its land frontier in Inner Asia. And if you take that on to its next logical step, that it opens the door to questioning the idea that the reason the British were so successful when they attacked China in the 1839 Opium War was because the Qing weren't interested in maritime defense. In fact, they were, as he shows. And that, in turn, opens up a whole new set of questions of its own. So it rejects still common assumptions of China's inward focusedness and isolation. And it suggests that China wasn't just a continental power, as people have long assumed. And I think that's probably one of the most significant new, recent new directions of the eating history. And I look forward to seeing where it goes next. Yeah, yeah. I actually read that book when I was doing one of my exams, and I really enjoyed it as well. So it seems that there is now a, a maritime turn to look at the Qing. Uh, exactly. Yes, I think so. And of course, all history makes you think about the present in different ways. But that, if you think about it carefully, it might make you think differently about different aspects of Belt and Road Initiative and so on and so forth. So the new Qing history may have come to its own end, but I think it's led other people in other really interesting directions. And who knows where those are going to go. And certainly, I think there's still a lot more that scholars can do. Chinese history is so vast. Fortunately, there always is. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, it's always very salutary to come back and think about things again after not thinking about them for a while, because you sometimes see them in a completely different way that didn't occur to you first time around. I remember a long time after my Sextants of Beijing book came out, someone wrote to me and said, why did you say this on such and such a page? And I looked at it and I thought, I have no idea why I said that. It's completely wrong. So I wrote back to him and said that. <laughs> anyway. But I must have thought it was right at the time, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not uncommon, right? Scholars issue corrections in, in later editions. That's true, yeah. Yeah, I, I do certainly look forward to seeing what the future can bring for new Qing history. I'm not a Qing historian, but I still find this very, very interesting. New, new, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Professor Wei Kong, for taking the time and talking to us about new Qing history. It's such an influential field for Chinese history. And I hope through this, interview, people can get a better sense of what exactly New Qing history is and what it aims to do and how it has changed the field of Chinese history in the past 20, 30 years. I hope so. It was a pleasure talking to you. Well, that concludes our interview. Thank you so much for listening to the Chinese History Podcast.